This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. Before introducing our guest, I would like to ask for a small favor. It would be help a great deal if you could follow the podcast on Twitter and retweet an episode with if you see it relevant to your followers. And today we have actually our first guest from the US. He's assistant teaching professor at Drexel University, Philadelphia. His research interests include the use of physical activity and exercise as a lifestyle therapy for the prevention, treatment and control of chronic disease. He is publishing a book chapter related to evidence-based methodologies and dementia. Ladies and gentlemen, I am honored to introduce our guest, Professor Michael Pruno. Welcome, Michael. Welcome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great that you can take the time for this. So, so my first question will be, as you're from Philadelphia, have you ever happened to do a stair training in front of the Philadelphia Museum of Art? <laughs> well, that's a that's a funny one. Um, yeah, I've been living in Philadelphia for about the last three full years, and uh, I've never actually been able to run the stairs myself and have my own version of uh, you know Rocky Balboa running up the stairs yeah. and pump, pumping my fist towards the sky, uh, towards the city. But um, as I said, you know, I think it's it's really important if you ever get a chance to come to Philadelphia. One of the must-see features is going to that Philadelphia Museum of Art. It is really a sight to see. Um, city's got hit the hit, uh, the city's got really great history, and um, it's 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 terrific for anybody that that would like to come. Yeah, I I will definitely go there when I come. Yeah, and and about your research, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your scientific background? Sure, absolutely. So if we start way back at the beginning, um, so I went to my undergraduate education at Central Connecticut State University in uh, New Britain, Connecticut. At the time, it was uh, a state school, yeah. so it was close by to my my friends and family, um, had the opportunity to um, save a little bit of money and get a degree, um, but it didn't always start out that way. Interestingly enough, um, when I was in high school, I played football and was track and field athlete, and really uh, was interested in teaching psychology at the high school level. Well, little did I know yeah. um, that in order to really have a good job in that space um, and have something that would be attractive for employers. I uh, I was advised that maybe you should really major in history and specialize with a minor in psychology. So then you could teach both, right? And that would be more attractive to employers. All right. So I did that um, and changed my major a couple more times, went to uh, exercise science at about my junior year at Central Connecticut State, and then very quickly learned that exercise physiology was really the space for me. Um Shortly thereafter, I parlayed that experience into um, an internship at the Hospital of Central Connecticut. It's their all-heart cardiac rehab program and worked as a cardiovascular specialist and exercise physiologist. Uh, and then that rolled into my time at the University of Connecticut, where I did my master's degree. Uh, worked under the tutelage of Dr. Linda Pescatello, who's yeah. very well known with exercise and hypertension. Um then took about a year off, uh, did some adjunct work back at Central, believe it or not, and realized that I love being in the classroom teaching, but I also love the research side of things. So uh, I knew that I had to pursue a PhD. And so I went to Springfield College uh, up in Western Massachusetts yeah. and got a PhD in um, exercise physiology and graduated in 2016. So still relatively new early in my career. Um, but that was sort of my lineage from where I started and 
how I got to where I am today academically. Yeah, that's interesting that you wanted to teach psychology and you were advised to study history. Yeah, I think I think it was more along the lines of just they were like, well, if you just teach psychology, that's going to be too specialized. Yeah, and so it's probably best if you study history, then you could teach a range of cra- uh, classes, and in addition to psychology. So th- my advisors definitely had my best interest at heart at the time. Mm, yeah, and and about your studies, so you have been doing about physical activity and exercise interventions with different chronic diseases. So could you tell more about those those studies? Yeah, so I'm really interested in uh, cardiometabolic risk factors, right? So mostly the risk factors that comprise uh, syndrome X or the metabolic syndrome. Mm. And so a lot of my studies really focus on cardiometabolic health. It, it all started way back. Uh, my first experience was working with Dr. Pescatello And we were exploring uh, the possibility for candidate genes that may be able to explain uh, human health and performance traits. Mm. And so we were part of this study uh, called FAMOUS. And I may not have the acronym exactly right, but I believe it was the Functional Single Nucleotide Polymorphisms for Human Muscle Size and Strength Study. And so um, the idea behind FAMOUS was they were trying to identify candidate genes that could help explain uh, some of the missing heritability or the variation in exercise responses, um, a la um, responders versus non-responders mm. to resistance training. And um, so I got some experience doing that um, as a graduate level research assistant. And we started to look at the data and realize that um, a lot of the studies that have explored the candidate gene approach um, really didn't, um, they, they were all sort of trying to find the missing gene that would be the one that really explained either human performance um, or the one that would really explain responders or non-responders for health traits like blood pressure response to exercise. Mm. So uh, we looked at some of the data and the studies that were being published during the early 2000s and realized that um, a lot of them tended to be um, smaller with regard to sample size. Mm. And they also had a number of other, um, not necessarily methodological flaws, but like, for example, correcting for multiple comparison testing with things like a Bonferroni correction factor. Um, Some of them happen to be very subjective to sample selection bias. And so this really formed the the master's thesis that I had conducted, which was uh, a meta-analysis uh, of all candidate genes that um, candidate gene studies that have been examining the blood pressure response to exercise. So we wanted to get a sense for what are the genes, what are the biological pathways to which these genes function that really dictates whether somebody will have a beneficial reduction in their blood pressure from exercise or perhaps if identified genes where people may not get as much of a response. Mm. And when you said that strength training and, and non-responders and responders, did you mean that in relation to the blood pressure? Uh, so the study has uh, has a num- had a number of different outcomes for it. So the primary aim of the study was uh, to identify the genes that explain human muscle size and strength. Mm. Um, but examples like blood pressure. Dr. Pescatello, I believe, has a 2006 paper that was published where she looked at um, the angiotensin converting enzyme insertion deletion polymorphism, or the ACE-DIP, and examined blood pressure response to exercise. Um, And so uh, the primary aim of FAMOUS was really to identify the genes that explain human muscle size and strength responses. Um, but there were other outcomes such as physical activity, which uh, a number of papers have been published from the famous data set with regards to genes that associate with higher or lower um, amounts of it's self-reported physical activity, but uh, physical activity measurement nonetheless. Mm, all right. And and could you just explain the, the basics of how the plot re- blood pressure response is in relation to strength training and, and how it differs between different subgroups of people. Yeah. So I think um, one of the things with regards to um, whether a blood pressure response will or will not happen is a lot of it is based off of um, 
what we call like endo the release of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, mm. which um, has vasodilatory capacities for our vascular tree. So one of the ways that I explain it to my students is the further away you go from the heart, you go from more elastic to more muscular um, lined walls. And specifically at the level of the arterioles, we have a lot of smooth muscle in that particular capacity. And so um, one of the reasons why we see blood pressure actually increase um, during exercise and as well as resistance exercise, where it's been known to surge mm. uh, very high, is because right we have an increase in cardiac output. So um, if you increase cardiac output, we're putting more blood um, into the system. Mm. And input into the system has not yet matched output from the system, right? So meaning not from the system, I mean blood that is making its way through the arterial distribution tree and getting down to the level of the capillary. And so input that is in the system is not being matched with output from the system. And so we see an increase in systolic blood pressure. However, um, one of the reasons why we don't see a tremendous increase in diastolic blood pressure is due to this concept of peripheral runoff. Are you familiar with that? Mm, no, not really. Okay. So uh, the idea behind peripheral runoff is that the by having a large increase in um, cardiac output as a result of an increased need for oxygen demand at our tissue levels, we can actually have um, redistribution of our, our channels. And sort of the way that... Uh, blood flows through our tubes is very similar to how water flows through pipes of a resonance. So these little changes that exist, that exist within the level of our pre-capillary sphincters, um, you know, we can bind uh, catecholamines like epinephrine to a beta two adrenergic receptor. And this gives us some passive dilation. Basically we open up a lot more of our vascular network. Mm. So th that blood flow that has been increased at a more central level to the heart is now matched with a sufficient distribution network by the time it's feeding into the capillaries where it's going to exchange with our tissues. And so um, systolic blood pressure is often going to go up as a result of the exercise intervention itself because we have an increase in heart rate and stroke volume and, of course, cardiac output. But by the time that blood that's ejected into the system gets to the level of the capillary, we've adjusted and opened up a lot more of our networks um, so that that blood can be accommodated and can slowly um, sort of filter its way into the capillary network where we can have optimal exchange. Mm. And and then you were looking for genes explaining this. How How is it different in different groups of people? This what you explained. Yeah. Sure. So uh, gen we've classified our genes in according to um, different biological pathways. So in the systematic review and meta-analysis that we had done, we classified them as either genes from the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, where a lot of genes have been explored previously. Um, some have gone through the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. Some have gone through... Um, the endothelial nitric oxide synthase pathway. Some have been inflammatory biomarkers, right? So they generally fall into those categories. But the one I really want to focus on with regards to blood pressure that I think is important is um, we did a paper in, uh, I believe it was 2017, looking at physical activity levels and the angiotensin converting enzyme insertion deletion polymorphism, mm -hmm. the same gene that I had talked about previously. And um, ACE has a really important role because it helps convert angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. Um, and that conversion, when we have angiotensin 2, really becomes a potent vasoconstrictor. And that means higher blood pressure, right? Because we have higher resistance mm. that is offered to the flow. And so having higher ACE levels has been shown to have uh, very vasoconstrictive properties to our vessels therefore increasing the resistance since the, the size of the lumen in our vessels is now smaller compared to um, when it's in an, either a normal state or a dilated state where we would see uh, greater enhancements in flow. So essentially what's, ha what's happening here is that um, people can either have two copies of the insertion polymorphism, they can have two copies of the deletion 
polymorphism, or they can have one insertion and one deletion. And what we found is that people who have two copies of the deletion polymorphism mm-hmm. um, oftentimes will interact if, in fact, they are um, overweight. So in this sample from the famous study where we've looked at uh, college-aged students, we found that um, there was about a um, 2.2-pound difference per year would be the calorie equivalent. So if you took, you know, 3,500 calories times – 3,500 calories times, uh, you know – 2.2 pounds, Mm. you would get the net number of calories that the person would, on average with that genotype, consume or not expend in physical activity compared to people of the other two genotypes, which means that if we're talking about 2.2 pounds every single year over the course of an entire lifetime, that's a tremendous amount of weight um, that is going to be gained over the course of, say, from 18 to 55 or 65 this slow incremental weight every four or five years, you're gaining 10, 10 pounds or so. Um, and so uh, we found that to be really important from a physical activity perspective. And we started to learn that, um, that these genes don't only have one specific role to which um, they're assigned, right? We used to think that ACE was just, you know, uh, renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. So with fluid balance and blood pressure control, but we also find that they have roles for other traits as well, like physical activity. Right. So did I understand correct that the same gene is controlling our vasoconstriction, but somehow also related to the amount of physical activity that we perform? Yeah. So I want to be clear and just state that candidate gene association studies are definitely association studies by nature. So we can't have cause and effect mm-hmm. exactly, but these are, these are what tends to happen with these, um, with people who have these particular genotypes is they tend to have lesser physical activity. Um, now, one of the, the things that we hypothesized in that paper was that people who um, have two copies of the DD genotype, um, the more unfavorable genotype and who, um, were overweight, okay, mm-hmm. is that why did we were trying to come up with some possible mechanisms for why that's the case? One of the cases was that we knew that there could be higher levels of gene acti- there could be higher levels, excuse me, of ACE activity. Mm-hmm. And so if we have greater constriction, right, then when we need to redistribute the cardiac output to the level of our muscles when we perform physical activity and exercise, um, if the tissues are already in a state of constriction, mm-hmm. Then we have that. That's problematic because that means that we're not getting the same volume or the same level of oxygen extraction at that tissue site. Mm. And so, um, exercise may be perceived by those who are performing it to be more difficult and less uh, economical with regards to their effort compared to people who have other genotypes. So these types of studies need to be substantiated. But these were some of the things that we were going through trying to get a handle around our literature and what we found. Um, these are some of the mechanisms that came to mind is that, well, if people have a more unfavorable genotype and they're, they have more ACE expression, um, then that means that there's greater conversion to angiotensin II, and then blood flow parameters are going to be altered. And that means that if we can't get the blood to the tissue, that might inadvertently uh, affect the amount of oxygen that can be extracted from that tissue. Um, and so exercise is more difficult. We may rely upon more anaerobic mechanisms uh, earlier on in the exercise bout than we otherwise would in other genotypes. Yeah, that that makes sense. So basically they would feel local fatigue faster than the others and probably then not enjoy activity as much and that would decrease their amount of physical activity. Yeah, so... We, we thought it was either going to be from the gene itself, um, that, that that could be a possible mechanism for this association that we found. Um, the other thing that we also understand is that as people gain weight, right, as they're gaining 2.2 pounds, roughly the calorie equivalent every single year, um, it's possible that as we gain weight, exercise, of course, becomes a little bit more difficult to perform. Um, and so we have to also understand the possible effects that the added adipose tissue has um, where 
we now have our body composition, which over time can change. Mm. And that too can make exercise perceived to be more difficult. There's thermoregulatory issues because with more adipose tissue, of course, we have a greater shell um, thickness. Mm. It's more of an insulative blanket. So tolerating heat becomes more of an issue. And if we can't release the heat from our tissues, that becomes problematic as well. Okay, let's get back to that in a moment and hear a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. How, how do you see, is there some practical applications from these findings that we could actually use, use somehow? Well, I would probably say that, um, you know, the average person, regardless of what your genes tell you, um, you know, having a poor genotype doesn't necessarily it's 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 a predisposition not a predestination that's the sort of the key catchphrase that keeps coming up in this process is that um you know just because your genes may not necessarily be um you know you may not have the genotypes that are going to essentially put you in a place where you're going to be a responder or a non-responder we have to remember there are several other genes there's over 20,000 genes. There's over 3.1 billion nucleotides in the human genome. And we also have to account for the fact that there's also epigenetic factors, mm-hmm. um, which can, can dictate the extent to which that gene is expressed or downregulated. And so, um, you know, these are some of the questions that I think a lot of people in the field of exercise genomics are really starting to uh, sink their teeth into. And uh, I think it's, a, it's very promising for the field moving forward because when I first became involved with uh, the candidate gene approach and exercise genomics back in probably 2009 or 2010, um, you know, it was sort of, you know, when Bill Clinton was president in two th- towards the end of the, uh, his presidency, you know, the Human Genome Project thought that we were going to have all the answers um, to the gene approach. And so one of the things that's happened uh, when I got involved in, in the candidate gene approach in 2010 or so uh, was that we actually ended up having more questions than answers at that particular point in time. So the field was sort of in flux. Um, I would probably say Dr. Pescatello has a better feel for uh, where the the exercise genomics field is going from, from here on out. Uh, since since that point, I've continued to publish a few papers with her with other um, candidate genes and also apply the concept of physical activity and exercise from just blood pressure and um, genetic predictors of exercise responses to blood pressure uh, and moved on to other cardiometabolic things uh, such as working with an in-center dialysis program, uh, working with exercise and hormonal regulation of um, appetite and hunger, right? Sort of as a root cause of that. And now more recently, uh, where a lot of my, my newer work is being done is with exercise and uh, cognitive impairment for older adults that live with uh, dementia. Mm. Yeah, I think the hormonal regulation of hunger would be would be interesting. Could you tell more about those studies? Yeah, so um, when I was at Springfield uh, College for my PhD, one of the things I really became interested in is selfishly is that, uh, you know, I've tended to struggle with weight throughout my life and, um, my weights fluctuated a lot. Uh, and I always noticed that, you know, if there was a way in which I can control my hunger Mm. and that tends to be a really big symptom for people that struggle with weight is there's, especially for bariatric populations is we very, the struggle with hunger is very, very difficult. And so, um, I started looking into this during my PhD as I began to get a better sense for some of the endocrine uh, factors that really dictate appetite and hunger. And uh, one of the things that I I realized is first the difference between hunger and appetite operationally defined. Hmm. 
So, uh, you know, hunger is probably best defined the way that I operationally define it as our true biological drive to eat, right? So mm-hmm. if you think about need theory, right, we need to sleep, we need to eat. Um, your body will know when you are truly hungry, right? Biological drive to eat. You will do things to get that food to correct that sort of positive feedback loop that you have where hunger just becomes uh, the, the, the sensation of being hungry continues to compound itself until you eat. Mm. Um, but the other thing that I think is also important is that appetite differentially from hunger really looks at the affective relationship that we have with food, right? Sort of the, the sense, the, the sense of smell that associates a meal or a particular food that we really enjoy, mm-hmm. right? There's some type of either nostalgic feel that we have or relationship that we have to that food, which may not necessarily be true hunger, but it's a very desirable um, want that people have. And so I started saying, okay, well, what are some of the reasons that dictate hunger and appetite? So I started looking at appetite regulating hormones. And uh, one of the things that I was interested in knowing is whether or not we can use exercise, right? We knew that exercise should be used to um, increase energy expenditure and we should work with uh, registered dietitians to decrease our energy intake. And that's going to help us with weight loss, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're going to create that caloric uh, imbalance. Um, But I'm really, I was really interested in wondering, well, instead of having these as independent entities, can we create an interdependent environment where we can use energy expenditure to modify energy intake? And so, um, I started doing, as part of my dissertation work, I recruited people from um, Western Massachusetts and uh, it was very clear criteria that we wanted to make sure that we compared people who were quote unquote normal or healthy weight versus people that were quote unquote clinically uh, or or obese, Mm. right? So they had to have a BMI over 30. We put them into a bod pod and we wanted to make sure that they had their waist circumference. Um, For men, it was over 102 centimeters, uh, women, it was over 88 centimeters. So we, they needed to have all three of these things Mm. that we were doing to make sure that they were definitely divergent groups. Mm. And, uh, we gave them three different conditions. And this model is actually based off of a model that I worked with Dr. Linda Pescatello on, uh, during my time at UConn. I liked the model, which was a repeated measures design where we randomly assigned people to either a seated control session for 40 minutes, um, a 40 minute aerobic exercise bout performed at um, light intensity, a 40 minute bout of exercise performed at moderate intensity and a 40 minute bout of exercise performed at vigorous intensity. We did this based off of the heart rate reserve, um, particularly because we had found that folks who we put through um, our submaximal and maximal testing protocols sometimes would struggle to stay at a moderate to high intensity for a full 40 minutes, right? right? It's very difficult. So we use the VO2 reserve, um, which uh, we can use it based off of heart rate or we could do it off of VO2. But the good news is that it really doesn't matter if you use heart rate reserve or VO2 reserve since heart rate and VO2 are one-to-one with each other. So we knew that when we prescribe these exercises at the reserve, um, we would not only be in alignment with the American College of Sports Medicine's exercise guidelines for what the evidence has shown to be light, moderate, or vigorous intensity. Um, but we also took blood before and after control, before and after the light exercise, before and after the moderate, and before and after the vigorous. The novelty of that particular study was that we realized that some of the peptide hormones that are associated with appetite and hunger include things such as ghrelin. And you could think of ghrelin as your stomach growling, mm. right? So ger ghrelin. Um, we looked at um, leptin, okay, which is a satiety hormone that's released from your fat cells. We looked at insulin. okay. We mm-hmm. looked at insulin for this particular study. Um, and what, there, was a, there was a fourth. Oh, we looked at the um, enzyme, which was recently developed uh, for ghrelin, which is, stands for ghrelin-oasyl transferase. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And so um, what's really important is for ghrelin, it's important to realize that it can either exist in isolated or a de-isolated form. And that basically means that we have phosphorylation to uh, the side chain of the molecule, specifically the serine side chain of the molecule. And so um, if we go ahead and have covalent modification, we phosphorylate um ghrelin and we essentially turn it on right like a light switch mm. we turn the enzyme on and now it's capable of crossing the blood-brain barrier and binding to its um, differentiated receptor in the hypothalamus uh, to ultimately induce hunger so we looked at this enzyme called ghrelin oasal transferase um, it's located in the level of the gut specifically the submucosa of the stomach where ghrelin is also co-secreted so they're both released at the same mm. time and one of the things that we found was that ghrelinoacyl transferase enzyme concentration in the blood was not different between uh, obese populations and our normal weight population, which means that from a perspective of regulating appetite with the hormone ghrelin, that the enzyme that's required to activate it seemed to be uh, similar and existed in both both concentrations for both folks that were in quote unquote, the normal group and quote unquote, the obese group. Mm. So that was a really important finding, which means that, you know, regardless of your body weight, you should be able to regulate appetite. Similarly, of course, we saw that it, when we looked at uh, leptin, that uh, people who were in the obese group, they tended to have higher than normal leptin, mm. but that's not necessarily surprising, right? Because leptin is one of those hormones that, the more adipose tissue you have, mm -hmm. the greater amount of leptin you'll release. So we expect it to have higher amounts of leptin. And so uh, while this specific study didn't have data to inform the presence of leptin resistance, um, are you familiar with leptin resistance? Uh, not, not too well. Okay. So if you think about what um, insulin resistance mm -hmm. is for type 2 diabetes, right? We have something called leptin resistance for um, appetite and hunger. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the problem may not necessarily be that people who are overweight um, or obese, right? That it may not be that they have excessively high levels of hunger hormone and that they're hungry all the time. It could actually be a problem where the receptors are either all occupied or the leptin cannot bind to its receptor the, in a way in which it's going to effectively uptake um, and, and provide physiological advantage to us. Mm. So essentially we can't turn hunger off, yeah. right? And so that it's a challenge with turning hunger off. And so um, I thought that this was a really important piece um, to the population. And the way I got interested in this to begin with was I said, okay, well, hypertension, right? What are some common things between hypertension? And I skipped over the work that I've done with uh, dialysis work, but the common theme that exists for a lot of these health conditions is obesity. Mm. And so I said, well, you know, I think that th this would be an important thing is that we know that to control obesity, it's, it's multifactorial, right? I only could comment about my specific role as an exercise physiologist in how I think exercise can be beneficial for people in curbing your appetite and hormones. Um, but there's a whole host of therapies that need to be integrated into what I consider to be an interdisciplinary model of care for obesity. This would involve work with people um, such as behavioral interventionists that know how to get people to actually do the activity mm -hmm. and to understand the relationship that they may have with food. This is all beyond my, my pay grade here. Um, and so they should be referred in work in collaboration with exercise physiologists. Um, but I think exercise as a tool could be to your listeners understood to be a really helpful tool to suppress uh, appetite and hunger for at least the short term. Um, for at least, so uh, we'll give you an example. We know that in previous studies, if you use exercise to curb appetite, it may only last for say 30, 60, up to 90 minutes mm -hmm. at the best case scenario, maybe two hours. But if you exercise and you time the exercise at the right period of time, let's say you're a night eater, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe if you go and you, you exercise and you get that satiety inducing effect from the exercise by having lower levels of ghrelin in your circulation, then um, 
you may be able to go home, hydrate, and go to sleep. We just prevented an overeat. We just prevented an overeating episode, and so um, I think it's really important. I can only I can comment on this in my own life that I found to be really helpful. So I've been um, for the last year or so been training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yeah, and I find it's a very um, vigorous physical activity, um, and I have found that uh, after I train Jiu Jitsu, that when I go home. I'm usually not as hungry, right? Versus if I was in a sedentary state. And this sort of goes back to um, some of the work that John Blundell had done where he looked at, um, I believe, workers, right? That worked, so factory workers that had different jobs and ultimately found a J-shaped curve where um, the more sedentary you are, the more dysregulated energy intake and energy expenditure was. But the more active your job was, the more tightly regulated uh, you generally consume the amount of calories that you expend. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I, I was really interested in this process and, uh, that was sort of the, the major motivation behind, um, getting involved with that particular study. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's fascinating. I think there's some studies doing also setups that the participants are sitting the whole day and then mm -hmm. they can freely eat as much as they want. And then on another occasion, they are standing the whole day. And again, they can eat as they like. And basically, when they are sitting, they are eat, eating too much compared to their energy expenditure. And, and then on the third uh, condition, they are sitting and they are given the right amount of food and they are reporting that they are still hungry. So I think wow. there's, there's a link between sedentary behavior that somehow the hunger, the feeling of hunger doesn't work. I don't know too much about how, how is it like that, but yeah. I have seen the study and it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. Uh, the other thing too is a lot of people, just because I provided the mechanism for the, the first study, I'll just kind of go through the, the idea of why we think um, the exercises created this interdependent model where you can basically not be as hungry after mm. um, exercise. And it's really right. We learned this in, in undergraduate exercise physiology courses that if in fact you, um, when you exercise, we know that there's a drastic redistribution of blood flow, right? Mm -hmm. From what we call the splanchnic area or the core all the way to the muscles, which will dominate almost 80 to 85% of the blood flow of the mm -hmm. cardiac output. Well, it takes time to get back to that, right? So if you are redistributing the blood from the gut where ghrelin is secreted from um, and you're allocating it to the level of the muscle, mm. it, the hypothesis that's been out there in the literature is that it's going to take a longer period of time for that ghrelin to get in the circulation because it's getting a lesser percentage of the total blood volume and the likelihood to, for it to bind to its receptor specifically the uh, the growth hormone secretory receptor uh, is going to be delayed or it's going to take longer for it to travel in the blood get to the get to the blood brain barrier pass it bind to its receptor and so that process of being delayed that's the key is that the basic concept of redistribution of blood flow takes where the gut peptide is typically going to root from mm -hmm. and it slows its process through the system so um you know, that's, that's kind of a key thing. Of course, we have to understand that when you transition back to the resting state from exercise, that it's going to go back, right? So that's why I, I kind of think the idea of exercise timing um, could be a really important tool for people that struggle with weight. And so, um, you know, I have to conduct additional studies mm -hmm. to now, you know, do exercise timing studies in order to identify if there are different surges and, and, and to further support these uh, mechanisms and hypotheses that I think are explaining the results. Um, but it really, it's an exciting field that I'm really looking forward to. Let's have a short break and hear a few words from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research.
Yeah, yeah. Sounds sounds interesting. So about the timing, how would you say that if you if you want to avoid eating before going to sleep, what would be the timing of the exercise session? Well, the, we do have to keep in mind that I would say, you know, usually four hours before you go to bed, mm. right? So if you if you go to bed at 10 and you're exercising at like six or six thirty or seven, you know, that would be a good time. Um because by the time you're finished exercising, it's probably like eight thirty nine, right? Mm. Um, come home, shower, maybe eat something small, hydrate, and just relax for a little bit and go to bed. You know, we do have to be careful though, because there are some literature and people that report that if in fact you exercise too late, some people become like it becomes like a second wind for them and they can't fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you do have to be careful with regards to that time. You don't want to dial up your sympathetic nervous system too close to bed because you may have a difficult time falling asleep. Mm, yeah. Um, so generally, you know, I would probably say to really make sure that you have that, um, probably as little as three hours, four hour window would be a good time window to do that. Um, Taking into account, of course, that when you come home, you know you may be eating after eight o'clock, and that might not be a good thing. Um, but particularly because you're going to go to sleep all night. But uh, generally speaking, for the goal is to have total caloric intake. I think that that time frame uh, is really a window where people can get some benefit from. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And if I go back to that uh, study, you said that you had 40 minutes of light physical activity, 40 minutes of mm-hmm. moderate, and 40 minutes of vigorous intensity activity. Was there some differences between these that you found? Yeah, so um, with regards to leptin, one of the things that we found was that um, the more vigorous the activity was, right? in the more calories that were expended as a result of the activity. Yeah. um, That generally gave us a little bit of a slight leptin surge. So a little bit higher leptin after the activity versus before. Yeah. And so that's no surprise is that we we see this a lot of times in like cyclists. And although I can't recall the exact number, I want to say the number is between 1200 and 1400 calories. If you look at cyclists Mm. who, um, you know, go out and they do like four or five hour uh, bike rides. And once you hit this threshold, you can actually induce a leptin surge. Some people who are, um, for instance, triathletes or people that, that are runners, marathon runners, so forth, sometimes they're not hungry after they complete a race. And that is predominantly due to the fact that they have these leptin surges after intense bouts of physical activity and exercise. And so um, similarly with our population, we found that um, with more vigorous physical activities, that that tended to give us a little bit of a leptin bump, um, which was good because we saw that post-exercise, the ghrelin and the goat levels were suppressed. Um, that was across both groups. And at the same time, we saw leptin increase after exercise. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the surges were higher for um, the folks who were of higher weight versus lower weight. Mm. But the actual change between groups was not different. Um, so that was that was encouraging to see. Um, so to the extent that we can with the data we've had, that's what I would say about that. Yeah. So so basically, if I recap, so if you do four or five hour bike ride, your leptin will surge and you don't feel hungry. Why why do you think this has evolved for humans? Why why would it be like this? Mm-hmm. You know, I have to be honest with you, I'm not hundred percent sure of the rationale because I don't I haven't traditionally examined studies with uh trained athletes, most of the populations that I've been involved with um, have been people who um, are either living with risk factors for disease states um, and then comparing them to healthy controls who may also be sedentary. So the exact mechanism for those studies, um, I can't necessarily comment on. Um, But if I was to speculate on that, um, one of the things that I think is, is a result of it is that sort of energy expenditure thing that we talked about with that J-shaped curve, mm-hmm. where the more vigorous the activity and the greater the energy expenditure, the better we seem to be um, in regulation of monitoring energy intake and, and energy outtake. And so um, I think due to the nature of those activities and the fact that energy expenditure is so high, 
that um, we become more tightly regulated and, and the body sort of figures out what it really needs as opposed to folks who are of lower activity status. Mm. Um, they're not really, there's, there's some level of dysregulation where intake and expenditure somehow um, they're just not in sync with one another. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I, I don't remember the study. So if somebody said to me this, but there was some speculation that if you compare light intensity activity to more vigorous, that, that when you do vigorous, actually your glucose reserves in the muscles are going down. And basically mm-hmm. this is inducing hunger. But if you're doing light intensity activity, the same effect doesn't happen. So that light activity would be better for for weight mm-hmm. control. Do you see any any logic in this? Yeah, I definitely see logic in that, certainly. I, I would also say that um, one of the things that I think about is implementation of the science. So what is going to be feasible for folks to complete? That's what I think people should ought to be doing. I don't think that's something new that I'm saying. I think that's been said for quite some time. But I think, you know, I would rather have somebody exercise at a light intensity activity versus doing nothing. Um, Sure, doing a little bit more would be beneficial for them. But if we progress them too quickly, the likelihood of attrition is high. So I would probably say that although, you know, with higher levels of energy expenditure, it certainly makes sense um, that we would have leptin surges as a result of that and better regulation of energy intake and energy expenditure. Um, I would say for certain populations, like those that may be struggling with weight is that we have to start slow and um, some of the best benefit that you can get is going from being sedentary, right? A quote unquote couch potato Mm. um, to going and doing something. That's where the biggest benefit. And this comes back to, um, I believe it's John Wilder's law of initial values. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. It's an, it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. Um, so uh, John Wilder's Law of Initial Values basically dictates that those who are the most, uh, those who are at baseline and have not had any type of training have mm. the most to gain, right? Yeah. They, have, they, have yeah. the, they have the biggest ceiling versus people who are already trained. They're ceiling, they're, they're already trained. So they already have a lot of benefits. So the, the magnitude of the change is probably not going to be as great, mm. right? Um, so that also applies for people when we're trying to get them active. If we go from the sedentary state to light physical activity state, right? Um, that jump is likely to show some benefit. And that can be really motivating for folks if they can start snowballing that benefit, right? And it can become motivating where maybe they start to see some positive effects in their mood or um, you know, maybe they lose a couple pounds in the first week or so. And um, they can then use that and parlay that into additional uh, motivations to continue exercising. Of course, we have to understand that sometimes people that get involved with activities, that they um, sometimes are overly ambitious, right? And so um, yeah. I feel like I feel like a lot of people nowadays when I, I work with some of my teammates who want to lose weight um, is they'll say, you know, I want to go on a very strict diet and I want to come and train five days a week. And I, I just say, you know, Right now you're doing, I haven't seen you in three weeks. So maybe we should start by, you know, let's just commit to doing one or two days per week for the next month. Right. And that mm-hmm. seems like such a low goal that anybody would be able to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then slowly after that behavior has been built in, uh, start adding to it. Right. As we start to see some changes and in, in, uh, we've built that behavior into our, our system. So um, again, I'm not a, a behavioral interventionist. Um, I'm an exercise interventionist, yeah. but I think these are from a practical standpoint for your listeners that may be interested in some of this. Um, I think that's really important is making sure that folks have a good understanding of how they're starting and being careful not to jump into it too, too quickly. Cause that can mean attrition. Yeah. I, I fully agree. I think usually people are overly ambitious and they don't aim for sustainable behavior change. It's just, it's kind of easier to market for people something like crash diets where right when you should actually move just slowly and try to really change the habits not not to create the project in a way yeah and if if we leave the biochemistry side a little bit behind i wanted to ask about your your book chapter that you are writing about evidence-based methodologies and dimension 
Yeah. So first, a little bit of background in terms of how I went from, you know, working with one clinical pop to the next clinical pop to the next clinical pop. Mm. One of the things that I think when someone's making a research line specifically for anybody that maybe are in graduate school and they're trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to be best at? What's the thing that I want to do my research in? And, and, um, you know, what's going to be sort of my mark and contribution to the field is really, as we go back to the PICO formula, which, you know, P stands for populations. I stands for interventions. C stands for controls or comparisons. And O stands for outcomes, right? Mm. And, you know, generally, as scientists, we really have to pick one of those three letters um, to be three of the four letters, the P, the I, or the O, has to really be our anchor. Mm. And for me, it's always been clinically prescribed exercise programs. That sort of is the thing that is never going to change. But you can sort of pivot to different populations or related populations that are experiencing issues with the same thing to help fulfill gaps and needs that we have in the field. And we can also pivot and explore a number of possible outcomes that are relevant to those populations. So for me, um, one of the ways that I got involved with um, the use of physical activity and exercise for those that are living with uh, dementia has been mm-hmm. with, we had a new dean that came to uh, the College of Nursing and Health Professions last year, Dr. Laura Gitlin, and she's a sociologist who does a lot of really great work with um, older adults and making sure that, you know, we want to try and let them age in place, live in the home. We don't want folks to have to go to um, long-term care facilities and uh, rest homes. So the goal is to try and keep people living independently in the home for as long as possible. Well. She and I had the opportunity when she came on board to talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of the risk factors and what are some of the the key drivers towards people that live with, um, you know, dementia. Hmm. And one of the key things that came up was, do you have any idea what it was? No, I don't. Hypertension and physical act- physical inactivity, yeah. right? And so, um, in lower socioeconomic status. Okay, so I said, well, you know, I think there might be something here. And so I, I started diving a little bit deeper into the literature. And uh, Dr. Pescatello's lab from UConn actually did a systematic review and meta analysis um, regarding current exercise guidelines for the World Health Organization yeah. for older adults that live with. Um, dementia and all specifically Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia. And uh, what we ultimately found was that there was some risk factors that associate with that. So I said, well, I talked to Dean Gitlin and she had an f- internal funding mechanism. And I said, well, I think what would be really valuable is we need to be doing more resistance training type studies and for older adults that are living with cognitive impairment. Because it's going to have a lot of benefit, both from a functional standpoint of preserving some of the lean mass and hopefully improving the activities of daily living. But we can also examine what they do for the cardiovascular risk factors for the metabolic syndrome, right? So we can look at blood pressure. We can look at cholesterol. We can look at glucose, waist circumference, um, Mm -hmm. BMI, and monitor changes there. Um, We're also able to examine uh, whether there are changes in... um, cognitive assessment. So we use something called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Scale, which Mm. assesses multiple uh, different domains of how we consider to be cognition, whether it's attention or verbal memory and, or, um, you know, tracing, doing a trace test. So what we ultimately came up with was let's do a in-center. So we took an exercise program not mm. holding it here at Drexel. We went out to a older care. We have PACE programs here in the States. So PACE stands for Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. Yeah, And so we co- we formed a, cl- a community collaboration with folks in uh, the PACE program. And um, we told them a little bit about what you know exercise can do for their members at their, their PACE program. And they were really interested in working with us. So we've been out there for now for a um, little bit of time now. And what we do is we give them three days per week of seated, supervised resistance training exercise with TheraBands. Um, and we're monitoring changes in um, risk factors for the metabolic syndrome. 
cognitive uh, function with the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Scale, and most importantly, their quality of life. Hmm. So we kind of got interested in our goal with this study that we're hopefully taking to the next level now is um, we want to identify exercise prescriptions for Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. If you look at the current ACSM guidelines, hmm. unfortunately, people that live with dementia are told, you know, they're recommended to do the 150 minutes per week. That's everybody's recommended to do from the who. Yeah. So we're trying to identify, well, is that feasible? What's the optimal number of days per week? What should the intensity be? How long should the exercise session be? And what are the key um, modalities that they will enjoy? So we've integrated, um, I work with a creative arts therapist, uh, Ms. Natasha Goldstein-Levitus, and she does uh, dance movement therapy that's integrated into our resistance training program. So it has a more of a therapeutic affective component to it. And then mm-hmm. we also work with another colleague and great mentor of mine is Dr. Stella Volpe. She's here in the Department of Nutrition Sciences at Drexel. She's really, really well known um, as a researcher for uh, metabolic syndrome as well. Okay. So she helps us with sort of, um, she mentors me as a young faculty member. And uh, she also has great expertise in sort of the nutritional component of our interventions. So that's sort of where we're at with regards to the field. We're trying to kind of figure out what are the boundaries of what an exercise prescription may look like for these folks. Hmm. And our next steps um, would, of course, be looking at the biomarkers. So beyond just the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, we're also starting to think about you know, what are, what does exercise do to some of the physiological changes that associate with Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias, right? So one hypothesis that um, I'm currently in the process of trying to figure out and develop is uh, we know that exercise, we have the enzyme creatine kinase, right? Mm. So if you have creatine kinase, creatine kinase, um, so we have sorry about that um so we have um creatine kinase can of course it's really important at the level of the muscle right and so Hmm. um that enzyme can exist in a multiple of different isoforms. One is level of the muscle. One is the level of the heart. And there's also one called creatine kinase BB in the level of the brain. And so um, there's not, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of work done with creatine kinase BB, um, which relates to the brain. So I'd be interested mm-hmm. in seeing if um, exercise can have a positive benefit to that enzyme for people that are living with cognitive impairment specifically Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Um, And the reason why I bring that up is because we know that um, there's been associations between long-term cholesterol use and um, Alzheimer's disease, right? Mm. So one of the things that I think about is, well, what's a side effect of long-term or what's a side effect of cholesterol medication? Sometimes it's fibromyalgia, elevated CK levels. And so, is it possible that some of what we see in the skeletal muscle as being elevated with cholesterol meds, is there a possible association where maybe we can also have elevated CKBB levels within the brain and maybe certain cholesterol medications may be interacting with our physiology in a way where we're producing cognitive impairment as a result of it? And so I'm interested really to first phase one of my work with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias is right now to finish our protocol now, get some preliminary data on that, mm-hmm. and then um, refine and build out what an exercise prescription really looks like, what's evidence-based so we can identify what the optimal number of days, intensity, time, uh, progression, et cetera, is for this clustered group of Alzheimer's disease. 
in related mm-hmm. dimensions. And then hopefully additional studies will allow us to identify if there's differences in how we prescribe exercise for people with vascular dementia versus mild cognitive impairment versus true Alzheimer's disease versus Lewy bodies, so on and so forth. And then get into some of the mechanisms. Uh, I think that's sort of the, the field has a lot of promise. And so folks that are listening that really are interested in that, um, I think it's a great opportunity that is going to be urgently needed um, for the future and the present. Because in 2050, um, dementia is expected, dementia rates are expected to double by 2050. So it's going to be a very mm-hmm. urgent health problem that we have to address. Yeah, yeah, and and this all will be covered in your in your book chapter. Do I understand correct? Yeah, so we're going to cover. So th- I want to be clear: the book chapter actually is going to be led by Dr. Laura Gitlin, so the dean I told you about. She and I are going to mm-hmm. be collaborating together on this, and so she's going to provide a lot of the the, the evidence based materials um, that are surrounded around uh, the chapter. I've been invited as a co author to work with her. Um, mm. and, and my specific role is going to be targeting, you know, physical activity and other lifestyle interventions that can be helpful for people that are living with dementia. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good. Good luck with the the book. When, when do you expect the, the book to be out? That's a good question. I know we're still working on um, a couple of the chapter. We're still working on the writing now, um, but hopefully we'll have that submitted by the end of the year, and I believe maybe by May of next year. Um, it will be um, perhaps in press or at least during review. So hopefully we'll be making some changes to that based off what the editor wants. Yeah. And yeah, we've been, we've been talking quite a bit about the studies you have done. Uh, Let's go a little bit to the future. Where, Where do you hope to see yourself in, in 10 years academically? 10 years academically. Wow. Well, let's see. I'm, I'm still pretty young. So I'm 32 years of age. And so, uh, you know, what I would hope is that by the time I'm 42, I have the opportunity to, number one, still be in very good health and mind and sound and, um, you know, still be able to provide quality education to my students here at Drexel. Um, And I really hope that, you know, within 10 years that we can start to really have these evidence-based exercise recommendations become something that's adopted by the American mm-hmm. College of Sports Medicine. I want I want them this 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 population to be served in uh, the guidelines. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my hope is that we'll have completed studies and got some funding to support these studies such that um, you know we have sufficient evidence with multiple studies and multiple lines of research that support them um, and that we can start to implement, you know, that's the other thing I really want to focus on is not only conduct the studies, but I want to also work with implementation research and figure out, great, we have this study, but on average, most research studies that are conducted, you know, they take 17 to 20 years to actually be implemented into the real world setting. And so um, I want to, you know, focus my work on how to take the findings that are learned and how do we actually get PACE programs to, um, you know, create the infrastructure and see the, you know, see the value across, um, across the country and the world to start providing these programs for folks because conducting the studies is one thing, but implementation is a whole different thing. Um, and so learning the process of sort of what's the approach, what's the best practices for approaching and adopting these types of things, um, is something else that I'm interested in. So conduct the studies. Um, and I would say work on implementing them both into the guidelines that exercise practitioners can use when they're working Mm -hmm. with folks and, uh, also work in terms of how we implement these interventions either in the home or into, uh, you know, PACE programs where people who need them can get the benefit from them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been very interesting discussions. I have learned quite a bit about uh, biochemistry, and if people want to follow your your studies, are you are you active on ResearchGate, Twitter? How do they find best you? Yeah, I would probably say the best way to find me. I am on ResearchGate. Um, I think we connected on LinkedIn, so I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there. My Twitter handle is uh, at my last name, so it's 
Bruno, B-R-U-N-E-A-U, Mill, so M-I for Michael and L for middle initial. That's actually the same domain domain that I've used for uh, since I was way back at Central Connecticut State for my login. So I kept it consistent over the years. Um, And if folks want to get a hold of me, they can also email me at mlb425 at drexel.edu. Anytime I'm glad to uh, talk or provide folks with resources that they may find helpful. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to be the guest in this podcast. Likewise, thank you so much for having me on. I hope it fit the bill and uh, is helpful for folks who are listening. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.